Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 83rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Rise Above Mass Distraction. I'm joined by Jamie Mustard. He is the author of The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out. The publisher is Ben Bella Books. Jamie is a London School of Economics grad. He's also an artist, a filmmaker, a consultant, and a leading authority on issues like brand, art, design, and media perception. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to the conversation, I must say. Uh, Give us a brief overview, if you don't mind, of The Iconist, just to get us started. So the idea behind The Iconist is that there's now so much content in the world uh, and this has happened really fast, like in the speed of a light switch, if, if you think, because it's come from the Internet, you know, the late 90s to early 2000 is clicked on. And there's there's now so much content that our individual voices have become diluted and we've become more invisible and we can feel it. OK. OK. So that's the that's the, that's the issue. And then the, then the book I and then I, I offer in the book a set of primal laws that explain why we pay attention to one thing and ignore another. And what I say is that if you understand the primal laws of attention, that you can use these laws in anything you do, whether you're a painter, a musician, an entrepreneur, a leader, a social change agent, you can, you can deploy these laws and that you can get the attention that you deserve for your offering uh, at will and with deliberation and certainty rather than hope, luck, or chance. There's a reason we call a Kleenex a Kleenex and a Coke a Coke. And we kind of look at that as something that's kind of just that happens to the lucky ones. This allows you to do, to get attention and make something iconic to your desired audience at will with uh, certainty by understanding the mechanics of attention. Okay. And speaking of attention, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of a man named William Wundt? W-U-N-D-T. I've heard the name, but I don't know who he is. (laughs) Sure. No, that's quite all right. Uh, I think you're going to find it really interesting because he was essentially, along with Freud, the co-founder of psychology. So a Central European from that era. And he came up with something called Wound's Curve, which I think is absolutely brilliant and feeds right into what I think you're after. What he argued was if you're trying to get a hold of people and make that quick, sweet connection... There are basically two kinds of spectrums you have to think about. One is at opposite ends, simple uh, versus, you know, something that is, uh, sorry, let me start that over. So one side, you've got what's familiar and what's unique. And you have on the other side, simple versus the complex. And his point was, if you just did simple and familiar, you've got, you know, vanilla, you know, it, it doesn't do anything for you. 
And if you go overboard and you go with unique and complex, it's fatal because you've overloaded people and they have no quick way in. So he argues that the sweet spot is combine the, the simple with unique or the complex with the familiar because that gives both some sort of access point for the audience and a twist, something that I guess is in, in your language, not just the arrow, but the shaft, something to keep them longer. Yeah. And uh, I'll send you the diagram eventually. But I, I thought of that many times when I when I was reading your book, because I think it, he is so obsessed as you are with, uh, and even before we got to the media age, so obsessed with the ideas, we, we got to make that quick connection because the joke that has to be explained to you in life is never as funny as the joke you just get. And we don't have time for the explanation anymore. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot to be said, and there's been a lot written about the power of surprise. And I think the power of surprise is a true power. What I think makes The Iconist different uh, than other books written on the subject of attention is that it gets to the foundation of it's, it, it's the undercut. It's the ultimate reason why we get magnetized to something or we lock on to another. And you, you mentioned this, I, this chapter later in the book uh, about the arrow and the shaft. And I compare, uh, I, I, I compare grabbing and holding attention to an arrow that would go in like a quiver, right? And, and I explain it kind of like this. If you were to try to take an arrowhead and shoot it without a shaft, it would just fall right on the ground. If you were to try to shake, uh, uh, shoot a shaft without an arrowhead, it would just go all over the place and it wouldn't land, wouldn't stick, right? So uh, uh, an arrowhead and a shaft need each other, and I and I use it as a, a I guess a, a metaphor or an example, an example for uh, uh, how simplicity and complexity work together. You have to lead with simplicity, so powerful that people lock onto you for an instant, like a road sign or a warning label. Okay. Yep. But if right following that, you don't have some complexity that validates that simplicity, you lose people. So there's this binary relationship between the simple and the complex. The simple grabs people, the complex keeps them there. Oh, no, I, I love that. I love that. And it's simple for you to explain it. And it, it, it wins me over readily. Let's go deeper into those blocks, if you don't mind. Um, another thing that's really important is you mentioned repetition. Can you uh, elaborate on that for us? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm a person that that because of, you know, I, I have, a, you know, I've had to kind of go through a lot in life. Right. And one thing I've learned, you know, from my humble beginnings is that when you're communicating to the world, Right. A lot of people think, well, I said it, so therefore I've communicated. That's not true. You've only communicated when you've been heard. Right. Uh, the only way you can know that you've been heard is through repetition. People need to hear something five, 10 times before they actually get it. So repetition is like a jackhammer for communication. If someone, you, you it, it cuts through uh, people's. People are so overwhelmed by all the mass media coming at them that they're kind of numb to it. We rely on all this micro communication, but we're also kind of pushing it away from us. So when we repeat ourselves over and over, A, we cut through all the other com uh, competing information trying to get through. And then B, uh, it's repetition sticks with people. And I give an example of the book of like uh, famous speeches. 
And I don't know if you want if if, if I'm allowed to kind of go into those stories. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I I found those very powerful examples by all means. Well, I talk about in the book in I guess August 1963, right? Is that where yep. I'm at? Yep. Right. Um, the uh, I have a dream speech um, by uh, uh, Mar- Martin Luther King, which is not you know as you mentioned in the beginning, I went to school in London. That's not just the most famous speech of the 20th century. It's the most famous speech in human history. And it's famous all over the world. I, I thought before I, that it was an American speech, but you meet guys from <laughs> Malaysia and China. Everyone knows that speech. It is the most famous speech uh, ever delivered. And what's interesting about it, or ever in, the, in, in spoken language, and what's interesting about it is um, it's actually a relatively short speech of just over 1,600 words in which Martin Luther King uh, says the words, um, I have a dream or let freedom ring approximately every 85 words. So what I argue in the book is if you take those words out, that repetition, I have a dream, I have a dream, let freedom ring, let freedom ring. No one ever remembers that speech. No one ever knows that speech. It's the repetition of these monolithic phrases that I call blocks. A block is something really simple. It's a, it's a monolithic thing that you repeat over and over and then if you do that, it will become iconic in the mind of your audience. And then at the point where it's taken into the mind, it's no longer a block. It's an icon of the mind. So a block, when I, if you hear me use that term in our, in our, in our conversation here, it's just an icon waiting to happen. No, no, I love that. I did not realize that speech was that famous elsewhere. I did in some ways, I admit, assume that it was, I mean, a great speech, uh, a powerful speech with a lot of purpose to it, very well delivered. But I, I didn't know that it necessarily resonated everywhere else in the world quite as much as here. And I, and I love your point about the repetitions. I must say, I have a PhD in English back in the day. And in academia, you tend to make your point probably in convoluted language in a long sentence. And then you move on to some other point and some other point. And you really don't use repetition in academia. And I sometimes object to the idea of real world versus academia, but that is one place where academia is not the real world in that it's not effective to to break through way yeah, too often. Yeah, yeah, and it works with everything. I mean, if, you know, I give that's an example of a pacifist, right? If you go 23 years earlier to June 4th, 1940, right, um, you have the second, what I think is the second most famous speech of the 20th century, second only to High of a Dream, and that's Winston Churchill's We Shall Fight speech. Yeah. When the British were losing faith to kind of, they didn't know if they had the, 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 they, they were losing the stomach for the war and the British, the British people were, were not feeling like they were going to be able to follow through. Uh, they were getting tired and he, uh, Winston Churchill went before the house of commons and he gave this speech. Um, and that, and the, and, and parts of the speech were later aired that night on the BBC in London and his closer that speech is this, we shall fight. You know, we shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the streets. We shall never surrender. We shall fight. He repeats, we shall fight. We shall fight. We shall fight over and over. That speech had a different name. Now it's known as the we shall fight speech. (laughs) But again, you take away that closer. And and what's amazing about that speech is it's given credit as what's turned, what turned, what galvanized and brought the British people 
together to stay the course of the war. So these block phrases can do more than sell your product or get attention for yourself or your paintings or your music or your business, your entrepreneurship. They can do a lot more. They can motivate people to do remarkable and extraordinary things when you understand how they work. Yep. No, I totally sold. I, I believe that. I also believe another point you're bringing up, which is the importance of understanding the audience's primary emotional concern and addressing it, that you you got to have this this block to succeed has to have an emotional jolt to it. Can you, you say a bit more on that front? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of businesses, I think when you're, when, you know, the, you know, businesses exist and I, I, I don't know who your audience is. Are we, do we have a business audience? Is it all over the map? Who are we talking? It's all, to? it's all over the map from academia to nonprofit to business. Okay. So, so, so say you're a nonprofit, you're a business, um, uh, you're an academic, right? Um, you know, studying something, a business, a nonprofit, these, these things all exist to solve problems. But when you work deeply to innovate something and, and you work at it, you really work at it, you really work at it for a long time, um, you can kind of go into the weeds in terms of how, when you, when you then turn around and want to present it to the world, it's very, it can be very difficult to figure out out of some, what should I present? Right. What, what do I, out of all these years of work, it took me, you know, six months to do this paper. How do I, what do I focus on in terms of the way I want to present it or this innovation that I made in this technological innovation? It does 25 things. What things should I focus on? Yeah. Uh, no, to, you lose perspective. You yeah, have myopia. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what I tell people is that there's always an intersect point between the best of what you're trying, the best of you or the best of what you're trying to offer or bring to the world. And the emotional problem that you solve for the person that you want to pay attention to your work. There's an intersect point. And when you find that intersect point, that is your block. That's the thing you want to repeat over and over to make iconic, to draw people to you and your work. With That's the thing you want to, the repetition part, right? Does that and make, the, yeah. yeah. And, and the emotional jolt, how, how is that also aided by, because you bring up another that's thing. That's a really good question. I should clarify yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So to me, so you have to understand that that people that that are going to a nonprofit or reading an academic paper, they're looking for a solution, right? So there, there, there is all, even even the most inane things have an emotional jolt if you're focusing on the emotional concern of the person. I mean, one of the examples I give in the book, this is a business example, is FedEx in the nineteen. Uh, 70s. Okay. Is it FedEx? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's FedEx. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, Positively. Yeah. 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 So, you know, like sometimes people are like, what's the difference? Ask me, what's the difference between a slogan and a, a, a block phrase, an iconic phrase, these primal laws, this warning label that causes people to lock. And the difference is a slogan is a thing that has very little meaning that actually sounds salesy and repulses people. Have a Coke and a smile. McDonald's, we're loving it, right? These things don't mean any, anything and they're repulsive to people. You know, um, FedEx in the 1970s, this is before the internet, before fax machines, they had this phrase that they put massive everywhere, billboards, magazines, television, uh, when it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. Now that might sound like an inane kind of, innocuous or kind of not very exciting phrase, right? It might not sound on the surface like it has an emo emotional jolt. But if you're buying a property, 
I'm trying to, uh, there's an inheritance with a timeline on it. You're trying to, um, when you're on a deadline for a document, that phrase before fax machines and the internet was a gut punch when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. When someone's got, trying to get something from LA to New York and if it's not there by tomorrow, they're in trouble. They read that and it's like somebody slapped them across the face. Yeah, Every- well, it, it's it's ironclad. It, it's giving you a promise. I will be there. It's taking away anxiety. It's creating security instead. Uh, and it has an arrow as part of the logo, which reinforces the idea that you're going to move forward with dispatch. Yeah. And what I would what I would argue is that because businesses, nonprofits, um, academia, you know, these things exist to solve problems, right? So there is something in everyone's offering that has that kind of resonance to their target audience. Yep. And you just have to think about, okay, what is what is the my target audience really care about? Okay, where does that precisely overlap with my work? That's what FedEx figured out so beautifully. And and I and because businesses exist to solve problems, there's always that emotional jolt if you take the time to study yourself and understand yourself and study your customer or study yeah, no, your audience. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree. And you also just staying with these blocks and these laws for the get, grabbing attention. Uh, let's go to balance and symmetry because you you indicate that that's also important. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about you know, we're kind of attracted to things that we can instantly understand things that like simple shapes. I, I talk about, you know, the seven wonders of the world it's, and how, if you really look at what's most wondrous in the world is probably not the seven wonders of the world. So I do a whole <laughs> study in the book of, well, why do we have these seven wonders and why do they get chosen when they're not necessarily the most wondrous? And the, the answer is that they have a simple, understandable shape to their, that, that is part of their wonder. You know, if you look at the pyramids, they're a triangle. If you look at uh, the Great Wall of China, there are a series of rectangles and squares. The Taj Mahal is a square, right? Um, I'm trying to think of what the other seven wonders are right now. <laughs> well, the Colosseum. But, yeah, the Colosseum yeah. is a giant, uh, you know, uh, circle, right? Um, so we, we are attracted there's a reason that you know we keep talking about road signs and warning labels there are a reason that these signs are always um uh either triangles circles or squares and that's because we're ma- we're magnetized by symmetry and i there's lots of theories as to why that is you know i like to think it's because before the modern world the only thing that really had symmetry were uh these in the natural world was probably the sun and the moon right uh, so we're, we've in our, across our evolutionary biology, these, these are two very powerful things that ha, that have been influencing us as a human from an evolutionary biology standpoint as a human population for a very long time. There's, sure, and, you know, and, I, and yeah, and, and speaking of biology, if you don't mind my cutting in, because it's, yeah. it's your point actually. Um, yeah, when we have a lack of symmetry, for instance, in the face or the body, uh, it's often indicative that we have an illness. Yeah, 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 exactly. I talk about that in the book too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you're so right. Yeah, because if yeah, if we want a solution from a company or whatever the case may be, we don't want a disease solution because it's not actually a solution. Uh, we want a healthy, vibrant one that uh, is going to really be there for us. I, I got to go to at least one more block before we move on from sure. this, this part of it. Um, you mentioned transparency and vulnerability 
and uh, how important they are. And I want you to address that in a moment. But I'm also wondering if transparency and vulnerability actually also allow for authenticity because we all are you know, vulnerable in this world. And I'm wondering if that's part of it as opposed to the glib phrases from McDonald's, et cetera, that you mentioned a moment ago that just don't really stick for us. Well, we're they all, they don't yeah. seem. It's a very, it's a very interesting question. I mean, we're all vulnerable, but we all don't face our vulnerability. We all try to, True. We, tend to <laughs> we tend to want to pretend like we're invulnerable. Do we think that that makes us look strong? Right. And so there's a lot of people that are listening to this that are probably familiar with Brene Brown. Yep. She talks about the way that we, I mean, and she's really interesting because she has probably the, one of the most watched TED talks of all time, 60 million views or something. And it was a TEDx and, and the main point of that TEDx talk is, you know, she basically says, if you want to be connecting with other people, you have to let people in and be vulnerable and not try to turtle up and be strong. And I, and I argue in the book that the corporate or business or nonprofit, the kind of institutional or organizational version of vulnerability is transparency, being truthful about who you are, not just trying to tell your customers what you want them to see. People connect to imperfection uh, these days. And part of that is because of the internet, right? Right. These days, right. You can search anything on Google with it. You could, in a th- you could find out anything about the world in a 30 second Google search. And, and people do. So when you're presenting your company, people are going to Google you. They're going to check you out. So if you look like you're trying to show this perfect image or you look like you're trying to show only what you want them to see, they're going to feel like you're salesy and lying. Where if you say, this is who I am, warts and all, that's who people want to do business with. And they're seeing it anyway, because everybody searches everybody. So this idea of, so I have a chapter in the book called Perception is Deception. Anything that looks perfect is repulsive. If you want to connect people, tell them who you are. And I get, you know, there's a great story in the book about Domino's Pizza, you know, basically in the late, you know, like, I don't know, 2008 or something, 2007, they basically got, came out to the world and said, we suck. We know our pizza sucks and we're going to fix it. And uh, they grew end over end after the 2008 financial crisis um, and took market share uh, far beyond any of their competitors by basically admitting that their pizza was bad and that they were vowing to change it. The power of vulnerability, the power of saying, hey, we're not perfect, but this is what we do, or this is what's wrong, something that, you know, is imperfect about us, but this is what we'll do for you. That is what causes, compels people to to you in the modern world. Well, I think we can relate to it because we might shield it from ourselves. We know we're not invincible and we're not perfect and so forth. I think that's some of the charm of the old Avis, we're number two, we try harder slogan was, um, you know, they were, I think that's top, a, they brilliant, top I yeah. think that's a brilliant example of that. Uh, with the Avis example, exactly. Like if you admit a vulnerability, um, in your, uh, in your, in your request to people to consider your offering, it is a magnet. It creates connection. And if you don't, you're repulsing people. And it creates credibility. I mean, because who's perfect? <laughs> it, it's true. And also, you know, it used to be before the internet, the, you know, um, that, you know, you could kind of present one message to your kind of employees and internally. This is another concept of transparency. And then present one message to the world. Okay. Transparency means that the thing that's going to inspire your employees or, or your customers 
um, is the and get them to want to come out and get out of bed every morning and come to the office and love doing what they're doing is the same thing that's going to sell your product offering or paper or change that you know that you have the correct repetitive block to present to the world. It, it has to work internally and externally. That's transparency. And that's new. That's new from the internet because people, every, we have, everything's a glass house. Now, when you, that's, when you look at say the, the Arab spring in, in uh, 2011, 2012, that's an example of the forced transparency that we're all living in. That was, or that was organized on those, those protests were organized on Facebook and Twitter. And, and what it tells you is that, when people can share in real time that they are living under the yoke of tyranny, they would rather die than go one more day. That's what sharing real time information. That's the op- I mean, there's a lot of things about the internet that bother me. Okay, but I admit, I have a lot of ambivalence. But the thing that uh, that that I think is very very positive is it creates an open society in terms of information. So people um, are, are going to be able to see who you are. So if you can find something to represent your company, this simple statement of identity DNA, that you know you have it right when it's the kind of thing that makes your employees want to go to work and it, it's the kind of thing that makes people want to flock to your business or your any sort of offering in terms of social, social change or ideas. I, I couldn't agree more. So we've got about five minutes. I want to hit two more questions if I could, and we might have to be a little bit briefer than I'd love to be. But one is, you know, not everyone's looking at their career in terms of being the next Van Gogh or Warhol, but most people have to go out and find a job. And I just the other day came across that the the statistic is something like with a resume, you got four to seven seconds to break through. It's a lot like my study of artwork and how long people will stay engaged. Based on your blog concept, any suggestion, given how hard it is for your online application to get noticed, any suggestions for yeah, people I mean, out it, there? It's a really good point. And I should note before I explain this, that this book is not just for entrepreneurs, social change agents, and academics. There's a whole, there's a chapter on music. How do you make yep. your music cut through? There's a chapter there is. on visual art, visual design, architecture. I, I cover it all. And right? I love, and I love all those chapters and those, those, uh, Areas you're covering. Yeah. But what is interesting is I have done some, and what you have to do, understand in terms of your resume, right? If you were trying to send in a resume in 1995, um, you were probably, and you saw a classified ad in the New York Times or the, you know, the St. Paul Gazette. I don't know what your paper is called, but, uh, you know, uh, you were probably competing with 20 to 50 people for jobs, right? I give it this whole study of online job boards in my book. Now, because everybody's applying from all over the country on Monster or, 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 or one of these sites, you're competing with a thousand people. So the people looking at the resumes, are they going to engage with a thousand the same way they engage with 50? No, you couldn't. Right? Yeah. So yeah. how do you make a resume where you're just blended in with, you're, you're literally invisible because there's just way too many resumes coming in now. Uh, how do you make yours stand out? And again, that's a combination. I, I've been I've been hired by CEOs to do kind of block what I call block resumes. Is there a statement that I can put at the top of my resume that will make me stand out like a warning label or a road sign? And then cool. the yeah. content of my resume keeps me there. And, and the answer is yes. And I do that for people. I get hired to do it. And I but I could give a exceedingly <laughs> twenty second synopsis of how to do it. 
if you wanted me to. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go ahead. Go for it. Um, so there's, you know, it's just a matter of understanding, again, what's your identity, who you are, what's the best of you, and where does that intersect with the purposes of the people that you're trying to get to hire you? If you, t- you could create a statement, like there was one CEO, you know, his whole goal was to, um, he wanted to like unleash people. He felt in corporate environments where he worked, um, people are really stuck in their kind of lane and they don't get to really express themselves. So his whole thing as a leader and a CEO is to allow people to be unleashed and be themselves. So we created this, uh, um, this block statement about unleashing employees. Okay. And the people that called him in were people that resonated with this idea of making people feel unleashed that like they could contribute to the organization. And maybe he even got called in less, but when he did get called in, he got offers. And he, and he got called in for the jobs he'd actually want. <laughs> yeah, he got, he got called in for jobs that resonated with his values. Yeah, yeah, And exactly. resonated with the values of the chairman of the board or the board that was hiring him, right? So um, it re- that's a, another example of transparency. Take, you know, there is that, that, that there's in a world that it's adaptive where we 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, you know, where there's a different version of an iPhone or uh, an Android coming out every year. It's people being unleashed is actually a, a very powerful emotional uh, phrase to the right CEO or the right chairman of the board. They want people. You need to empower people uh, in an adaptive economy. So that was power. So what I always do when I'm, I'm working with someone is I really get into their identity DNA to find that thing. Then we who are you? Then we start to look at where they want to go, and then we find the intersect points. We put that at the top of the resume massively, like a road sign. You're flipping through a thousand resumes. You're the only resume that has a massive sign across it. So the person goes, oh, what the heck is this? Well, I, I also like that the poet in me, the ex-poet in me, likes unleash as opposed to empower, because empower has been overused. And unleash creates a visual image and actually suggests the unfortunate reality that a lot of times the employees who are leashed feel like they're dogs being taken to the park and uh, don't have much control over their lives. So it, it's a very powerful notion. I, I like it a lot. So one last question. I, I can't. I was going to go to ad agencies and why aren't they more effective? And maybe you want to take it that direction. But as you point out, the book goes, you know, discusses the visual arts and many others into film and so forth. Is there something you want to go to in, in the closing time if it's not the advertising uh, to, to make some additional points about The Economist? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I'd like to talk for a second about the emotional importance of it, right? I mean, this is a show about emotional intelligence, yep. right? So, you know, to me, what people need to understand is that when we can express ourselves, it actually has massive psychological impact on us. When, and when I say express ourselves... Anyone can go out and express. Well, but true expression means you're being heard and you're yeah. being heard by the people that you want to hear you. If you're not being heard, you're not expressing yourself. You're just a person shouting in the middle of the words. Is that expression? If no one can hear it? Expression means that there's somebody receiving by my definition. So I give this example of Barry Schwartz. He wrote this book in... Uh, the early 2000s or the mid 2004 or 5, I think, called The Paradox of Choice and how there's actually so much choice in the world now because of uh, the pop, the size of our population and the internet and globalization that we actually have psychological consequences from being bombarded with too much choice. 
we will we'll experience paralysis. We won't make a choice because there's too much choice. We have anxiety. What if I choose the wrong one? We have dissatisfaction. I chose one and then I think, oh, I should have chosen the other one. And ultimately, we can become depressed about choice. So let's talk about the emotional intelligence of expressing ourselves. I have found that those are the what what Holt, what Barry Schwartz, who's a psychologist and professor of social theory at Skidmore, uh, points out so cogently in his book. Those symptoms are the exact same symptoms of how we feel when we don't when we feel like we can't get the attention we feel like we deserve for our ideas or any of our offering or our whatever we're trying to put in the world. We have the exact same psychological consequences and they're serious. If we don't think anyone's going to listen to us, we'll be paralyzed and we won't even try. We have anxiety about whether we're going to be heard. We're dissatisfied with our lives when we're not heard. And we can become depressed when we feel like there's so much fire inside us and we can't get anyone to care. These are serious psychological consequences. And we need to be emotionally intelligent and be self-aware of these, these consequences so that we can take action to be full humans and make sure that we're being heard. We need recognition. We need to be heard, whether it's getting buy-in from our boss or getting a thousand people to show up for our concert or getting a record label to be interested in our music, whatever it is, we need to be able to get that attraction from the people that we want to listen or we do not feel full, we do not feel whole within the human experience. We need to be emotionally intelligent and admit that to ourselves and learn to understand it and how to make sure that we are heard. And that is why I wrote the book. Uh, that's great. That's very impassioned. And I think it's totally on target. I mean, if we don't have a sense of connection and affirmation, I mean, I, as I was listening to you speak, I, I started thinking about it. I said, no wonder the Shriek by Edvard Munch is one of the top five you know, most famous works of art in the world, uh, particularly in this day and age. I think it's a I think it's a really good point. I think it's a it's the visual narrative, <laughs> you know, of what 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 it's the unexpressed, right? It's what we're yeah. all experiencing internally right now. Yeah, that that character is shrieking and and you know, no one's listening seemingly in the painting. They're just passing by or looking off elsewhere and uh you know, it's a blood red sea and and uh hell is being paid for this sense of isolation, psychological isolation. So I want to thank you, Jamie, so much for especially your last answer, but the entire episode in the book, quite frankly. Uh, This is episode number 83, uh, Rise Above Mass uh, Distraction. Sorry, I can't read my own writing from writing (laughs) that down. Uh, This is Jamie Mustard. He is the author of The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can also find other episodes by simply typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight on the New Books Network's website or go to my company's website and type in, uh, you know, looking for my podcast appearances and uh, guests I have on my show. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, uh, I'm sure you know the name Chris Brogan, and you're probably very familiar with this statement. Uh, That social media strategist said, cultivate visibility because attention is currency. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. (laughs) 